You're listening to Accounting Matters, an accounting podcast powered by Embark about accounting matters because accounting matters. On today's episode, Av and I were joined again by Nicole Harger, a member of Adam's quality team here at Embark, and we talked about one of the many facets of ASC 842. Specifically, we talked through modifications and remeasurement for leases. So once you've made it through the initial adoption process, it's time to think about what's next. What do you do with these leases? How do you maintain them? Maybe you can think about it like adopting a dog. Once you buy the dog, the work isn't over. You still have to walk it and feed it, take it to the vet, you know, general maintenance to keep it alive. This is kind of that let's keep the leases alive phase and making sure we stay up to date with all that's required for ASC 842. We hope you enjoy the discussion and learn something new. This is Sarah Cage and I'm joined again by my co-host Adam Olson, Embark's national quality leader, and we are welcoming back Nicole Harger into the podcast studio. Today we will be talking about lease modification and remeasurement under ASC 842, which is a mouthful. <laughs> and maybe to back up, and before we start today's discussion, I'm sure many of our listeners are aware, but for those who may not be, why is ASC 842 coming up so much right now? I feel like I'm seeing it everywhere. Yeah, so it's it's obviously, it's been a popular topic. I feel like we've been talking about leasing for years. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, since the original standard was, or the original ASU that gave us the standard was issued in 2016. But obviously all public companies, you know, or the majority of public companies adopted the standard back in 2019. And after deferral, after deferral, um, for, you know, good reasons, um, you know, private companies are now rounding the corner about having to implement and adopt 842. So for all calendar year and private companies, um, it'll be effective for them in 2022. So not that far away. So it's, it's definitely something that people are really kind of relooking at or looking at for the first time if they've been kind of putting it on the back burner. Um, and so, you know, we're here to help. That's awesome. And so before we dive into the details, can you give us kind of a general lessee accounting under 842 flyover summary? Yeah. So let me just do a quick kind of recap of how, you know, you would be accounting for maybe like a new lease, you know, post adoption under ASC 842. So, you know, the first step is really a lessee has to consider whether or not their contract is or contains a lease. That's that's always step one. And you aren't sure, you know, plug our embedded lease episode. We go into that in pretty good detail. (laughs) Um, So a lot of good content in there if you're wondering what, what, you know, what you have to think about when going through that exercise. But just, you know, GAP defines a contract, um, contains a lease, if it essentially grants a right to the lessee um, that gives them the right to control the use of an identified asset for a certain period of time for, you know, in exchange for some consideration. Um, You know, once a lessee has figured out which contracts do contain a lease, you know, then they have to think about are there any non-lease components or other lease components and separate those components. Um, You know, and this is important because really the guidance in 842 is assessed at the component level. So if you have multiple components, you got to apply the guidance at each component and not necessarily the contract level. Once you've got your components, then it's, you know, measuring the consideration in that contract, allocating it out. For those of you that have done 606, it'll, you know, kind of sound familiar that, you know, allocation method, you know, that you'll do for each component. You know, I will highlight that there are expedients available. Won't go into a ton of that detail there, but, you know, some expedients that could simplify some of that allocation process and the need to separate components to keep in mind. 
So you probably want to use the experience. That might be the, the takeaway there. What about lease classification? Anything different under 842? Yeah. So once you've you know separated your components or not separated, depending on if you took expedience or not, then for each lease component that you do have, you obviously have to assess those each component for classification. So for lessees, you know you still have just two types of classification. You've got an operating lease or a finance lease. Um, and in order to figure out which one you have, there's essentially five tests you apply. Mm -hmm. The tests are very similar to what people were used to seeing under the old standard ASC 840. So, you know, you've got your transfer of ownership, your purchase option, looking at the lease term and whether it represents a significant portion of the economic life of the assets. You know, you've got that lease payments test and then whether or not the asset you're leasing is actually a specialized asset. Um, so if you meet any of those, you end up with a finance lease. Absent meeting any of those, you got an operating lease. Finance lease is new. It used to be capital. Yeah. Right. Thank you. That's a really helpful overview. And I know we mentioned this. Most public companies adopted 842 back in 2019. And now private companies are kind of going through and are having to adopt this in 2022. So since we're talking about modifications and remeasurements, is it safe to say there's more to 842 than just focusing on the initial adoption? Yes, though there is. So not to scare <laughs> um, those that have yet to adopt because that is you know, a daunting task as well. You'll mm -hmm. have to get through that, but it doesn't stop there. Um, unfortunately, you'll you know hear a lot of people refer to as um, the 842 standard is not really like a set it and forget it, like lease mm -hmm. accounting model, but it really requires continuous monitoring of a company's lease portfolio um, for changes in their leases. And this isn't just related to things like impairments and things like that, but also a lot of assumptions that may have been made, um, particularly around like options that exist in leases. Um, so if facts or circumstances change, you know, having to kind of continually reevaluate mm -hmm. um, some of the conclusions reached um, around some of those options. So if you think about a renewal option or termination option, you know, you assess that when you initially account for the lease, but, you know, a couple of years down the road, maybe what you once thought is now different. So thinking about how that impacts the accounting. Um, so if you think about a company that's got tons of leases, you know, and having to continually monitor all those leases, you know, it's, it's a big overhaul to maybe what they're used to doing. So lots of changes in just processes and the way they, you know, handle things internally that need to be thought through. So um, definitely something that, you know, companies need to be aware of. All right. So we don't want to scare our listeners away. So we're going to hone <laughs> in on today's topic because 842 is massive. We could talk about this for forever, um, but we're going to hone in on modifications and remeasurement. So Nicole, can you kick us off talking about modifications? Yeah, sure. So um, the FASB defines a lease modification as a change to the terms and conditions of a contract that results in a change in the scope of or the consideration for a lease. This includes changes to existing lease terms, uh, such as extensions, early terminations, changes in timing of scheduled payments, and access to additional uh, right of use assets. So when a modification does occur, a lessee will either account for it as a separate new lease or as a single modified lease. Okay, so let me see if I can try and restate that a change to the terms and conditions of the contract that adds or terminates the right to use one or more underlying assets or extends or shortens the contractual lease term is a lease modification. Yes, that's exactly right. Okay, so how does one determine if that modification is a separate new lease then? So um, the modification is only accounted for as a separate new lease when 
the modification grants the lessee access to an additional right of use asset and the related payments for that right of use are commensurate with standalone prices with some adjustments allowed for particulars in the contracts. To clarify, an additional right of use must be an actual additional asset that the lessee has access to that they didn't originally under the lease before it was modified. Um, Simply being granted additional time to use an asset does not meet the criteria um, to be a lease modification accounted for as a separate new lease. So just to clarify those two conditions, is that an and or an or? It's an and. An and. So, so it has both, to be both have to be met. Okay. Yep. Could you provide an example of a situation where the lessee would account for the modification as a separate new lease and then how it should be accounted for? Yeah, sure. So if a company has a current lease for one floor of office space and the lease is modified for additional two floors with rent payments that are consistent with market rates in the area at the time of the modification, the lessee would now have two separate leases. So they would have the original lease and then a second lease for the additional two floors. Um, The additional lease space would be accounted for in the same way any new contract is under 842. So the lessee would have to assess the contract to ensure it is or contains a lease. They would have to separate any non-lease components as Mm -hmm. applicable and allocate consideration in the contract. They would have to determine the classification of the lease, so whether it's operating or finance, and then also recognize a right of use asset and related lease liability on the balance sheet at the commencement date. Okay, so in your example, you mentioned pricing being in line with market rates. Are there situations where that pricing could vary from markets but still be considered a modification, assuming the other conditions are met? Yep, so the guidance suggests that while the additional right of use should result in an increase um, in lease payments commensurate with standalone prices for that right, um, they can be adjusted based on circumstances of the modification itself. So for example, going back to this kind of office space scenario, if a company leases one floor of an office space and they want an additional floor, it's obvious that that additional floor would be an additional right of use asset. But let's say the standalone price for the additional floor is not the same as similar floors in a similar building. Um, And that could be because the circumstances of the arrangement allow the lessor um, to not incur the same amount of cost as if they were leasing to a new tenant versus one they already have an existing lease with. That fine line between should and can. <laughs> I'm allergic to wheat, so I shouldn't eat cake. <laughs> but can I? Yes. And I do. <laughs> okay, let's keep drilling in on that. Can an oral or implied modification to a lease be considered a modification? Yes. So uh, modifications don't necessarily need to be in a written agreement, just as long as there are enforceable rights and obligations um, created by the parties in the contract. So I'm thinking all of our lawyer listeners maybe just cringed a little bit. (laughs) Yeah, and that's similar to like 606, right? They have similar kind of guidance out there for oral contracts under revenue um, accounting. So kind of the same premise here. Okay. And then how is the modification date determined? So the effective date of a lease modification is the date the modification is approved by both the lessee and the lessor. Straightforward. I like it. Yep. How does a lessee account for any direct costs incurred or lease incentives received with the modification of a lease? Yep. They would be accounted for in the same manner as they would be in connection with any new lease. 
So let's go to the other side of this. Uh, assume a modification does not meet the conditions to be a separate new lease. Adam, what do we do next? <laughs> yeah, so if a modification is not accounted for as a separate new lease, then it basically what you have is like a single modified contract, um, which will make it subject to what's known as like the lease remeasurement guidance. And so in that case, if a lessee's got a single modified contract, they basically go through a lot of the similar things that you would go through for a new lease contract. So it's reassessing whether the single modified contract is still a lease um, or contains a lease. You know, you've got a measure and allocate your contract consideration among the lease and non-lease components that you've identified. You got to reassess your lease classification for all your lease components. And then you would remeasure your lease liability and adjust your uh, related right of use asset. Um, when you remeasure the lease liability, you do have to update your discount rate. So it should be the discount rate that would be as of the modification date. So just another like variable to keep in mind there. Um, you know, one thing you do need to keep in mind is like oftentimes when you have a contract that does give you an additional right of use, but for whatever reason, it doesn't qualify as a separate new lease contract. Let's say the payments weren't commiserate with standalone prices, so it didn't qualify for that. Um, you can often end up with two lease components in your single modified contract, so each component will have to be assessed separately. Um, and this could be, you know, an example of our office building. It would be, you know, like the original office space you had, and then it could be the additional floor space that you obtain as the two different lease components. Okay. And are there other circumstances where a lessee has to remeasure its lease liability and right of use asset? There are. And so remeasurement guidance doesn't only apply when there's a change to like the original like lease contract or terms of the original lease contract. So the guidance will also suggest there can be circumstances where other events happen that do require a lessee to remeasure their lease liability. So mm -hmm. Common ones there are changes in the lease term. Mm -hmm. um, so these you know, aren't necessarily contractual changes to the lease term, but they could be something that changes related to the lessee that would change the lease term. So for example, if you had a renewal option that you know maybe you didn't think you were gonna take when you first entered into the lease, but now all of a sudden, two years later, you love the place, you realize you're gonna be there for a while, the option looks great. And so now you've changed your, um, you know, your assessment of whether or not you're gonna exercise that option. So you do, you now are changing your lease term by extending. So that would be an example. Same with purchase options. So if you got a purchase option, maybe you're changing whether or not you will or will not exercise that purchase option. Um, resolution of a contingency related to like, you know, often lease payments. So contingent payments become fixed. Um, and then the last one is really kind of the, you know, assessment about any residual value guarantee. So if there's any change in what is probable of being owed under a residual value guarantee. Those are kind of the four other buckets where you would have to remeasure. Okay, so those first two were kind of centered around options of a lease. So how would a lessee know when they need to reassess their lease term or their purchase option in a lease and trigger this remeasurement guidance? Yeah, so the ASC 842 provides kind of instances where you know a lessee would be required to reassess. And so uh, the ones they highlight is, you know, if there's a significant event or change in circumstances that is within the control of the lessee, you know, that could impact whether or not it's reasonably certain that they'll exercise an option or not, um, that would be an example of, you know, a need to reassess. Um, sometimes agreements will have things that are, you know, it's not necessarily kind of an exercise option, but it's something that is written into an agreement that is a certainty that'll happen in the future. If that event occurs, it could require you to reassess. You know, I kind of already gave a couple of these examples, but like if you 
had an original assumption, like you thought you were going to exercise an option, and then down the road you decide you're not going to exercise an option. You know, that's changing facts and circumstances around the lease. And then on the reverse side, you thought you wouldn't, but now all of a sudden you are. You know, that's another event where you would have to reassess. And you know we love examples, so can sure. you share some significant events that could trigger the need to reassess? Yeah, so some examples are provided in the guidance, which I, I think is helpful to have. Um, so one is around significant leasehold improvements. So if they're expected to give a lot of significant value to the lessee when an option becomes exercisable, that might be, you know, obviously an indicator that you do need to reassess. Mm-hmm. Um, if you know a lessee made significant changes or modifications or improvements to the underlying asset, you know particularly around whether or not they have like a purchase option, that might be evidence to say, yeah, that's a significant event that likely need to look at that purchase option. Again, um, you know if you've got complementary assets to the leased asset, and you know maybe those are leased and you've extended the lease on those, probably need to warrant whether or not you're going to extend the lease on this other asset that's complementary. Um, or if you, there is no alternative asset that you have, or maybe you had one and got rid of it, you know, might be thinking about, are, do we plan to purchase or extend the lease of this asset here? And then really, if there's any kind of subleasing activity. So if you have an asset that you entered into a lease and then you subsequently sublease that, if the sublease obviously extends beyond the original lease term, you, you probably need to factor in that there's some type of a <laughs> renewal option or something happening there, or you're purchasing that asset. <laughs> All right, so you mentioned purchase options. What about a change in market value of the underlying asset? Does that alone trigger measurement? It doesn't alone. So one thing to keep in mind is that for all of those events, they're all things that are kind of within the control of the lessee. Mm-hmm. And that's important, you know, when you're thinking about whether the need to reassess any of your options, so extension, um, you know, termination, purchase, things like that. So. Mm-hmm. You know, for example, we can we can take one here related to like a purchase option. So let's say you're leasing some office or warehouse space uh, in a particular area of the city. You know, it's a five. Well, that doesn't sound right. Let's say a ten year lease. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got a purchase option associated with the with the building that you're leasing. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, let's say two years into the lease or so, the city all of a sudden is going to be doing a huge renovation project. They're going to be investing a ton of money into the area. Um, you know, real estate prices are expected to boom as they continue to develop and enhance the area um, to where that, you know, the purchase option is, you know, in the money and, you know, with respect to where the future value of that, you know, building's, you know, value would be. You know, there's a question there whether that event alone, so the city investing time, energy, money, is enough to warrant the need to reassess that purchase option. And the answer is no, because, the city doing all those things isn't really technically within mm-hmm. control of the lessee. They may be beneficial, and it obviously could make that purchase option more attractive. But that that improvement alone doesn't require a lessee to have to reassess. Um, a lessee would really have to be thinking about their own business decisions, and if there were changes in their you know reasonably certain ability to exercise that purchase option then obviously they would reassess but just the kind of market improvements of the the space where the building's at is is not a, a loan to trigger reassessment and you said the phrase in the money what, did. what does that mean <laughs> tease that out so in the money would be like the you know the building's worth 10 million dollars but you've got the purchase option um, in the the lease agreement that you could buy it for 5 million okay so 
So you're in the money. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, you got some upside. If the building was worth less, you obviously aren't going to exercise that purchase option and pay more for it. So you're out of the money. <laughs> you're out of the money. There you go. What about impairment triggers? Does that cause a required reassessment of the lease term or purchase option? Not by itself. So kind of similar to what we talked about with like market conditions changing that make you know more of an upside for you know purchase option. For example, um, impairment triggers you know in isolation don't. Um, and this is because, you know, a lot of impairment triggers really are kind of market-based events. So it could be like, you know, if you go back to your guidance in ASC 360, some of them are things like downturn in the economy or, you know, regulatory changes or, um, you know, market-based decreases in the fair value of assets or things like that, that really aren't within control of the lessee itself. So those alone wouldn't automatically trigger reassessment. Now, there are some impairment factors that are entity specific, like the use of an asset, how you plan to use it, change in that, for example. So there could be impairment triggers that do you know, necessitate maybe looking at um, reassessing some of those options, but any you know, impairment trigger in isolation wouldn't do that itself. Okay. So let's assume you have a change in the lease term or purchase option. What all goes into the remeasurement process? Yeah, so um, the lessee would need to reallocate contract consideration um, between the lease and non-lease components. Uh, the discount rate would need to be updated. So the rate that you're using in the calculation of the present value lease payments, um, and it would need to be as of the remeasurement date. Mm -hmm. uh, you would need to reassess lease classification and then also remeasure the lease liability and adjust the right of use asset. Okay, so basically in either a change to lease term or purchase option assessment, the lessee is required to perform a full reevaluation of the lease. Yeah, so other than reassessing whether the contract is or contains a lease, that's exactly right. You want to keep in mind that a change in a lease term or the exercise of a purchase option could very easily change the classification of the lease, mm -hmm. or it could impact the values at which the related liability and right of use asset are measured. Um, so that's why you really kind of want to take a step back and fully reassess uh, the lease or your leases when any of these events occur. I should also mention that when reassessing lease classification for a remeasurement event, um, the classification assessment needs to be performed as of the remeasurement date. So factors such as remaining economic life or the fair value of the underlying asset would need to be as of the remeasurement date. Same goes for the discount rate. The discount rate would need to be updated based on the remaining lease term and the lease payments from the remeasurement date. One thing to mention here is if the initial discount rate used at commencement already reflected the related options to extend a lease term or buy the asset, uh, the discount rate in those situations would not be updated at the remeasurement date. That makes sense. So you did mention a couple of events that can cause the need for remeasurement. Can you maybe give examples and explain what you meant by each of those and how the remeasurement guidance works? Sure. Um, so let's look at a resolution of a contingency and just jump right into an example. I know you like this. I do. Um, so let's say you lease a car for 36 months and the lease requires you to stay under 36,000 miles um, for the term of the lease. And then you have to pay 20 cents per mile for anything in excess of what you use. Um, at the commencement date, 
the variable lease payments related to the excess mileage contingency is not included in your lease payments um, for purposes of classification and measurement um, as those variable payments are not based on an index or a rate. Um, however, let's say at month 30, you exceed that 36,000 mileage limit, mm -hmm. um, those excess mileage payments essentially become known because, and they are now fixed lease payments. Um, essentially, the contingency is resolved in that situation. So as a result, you would need to, um, in, those would need to be included in the measurement of the lease liability and it would trigger remeasurement. And then the last event requiring remeasurement, Adam alluded to this earlier, is when um, changes to amounts probable of being owed under residual value guarantees occur. So a residual value guarantee is a guarantee made to a lessor that the value of an asset at the end of a lease term is will be at least a specified amount. So if this amount changes, that essentially means it's a change in your lease payments at the end of your lease term, um, which again, triggers a need to remeasure the lease liability. So um, in both of these situations, the lessee only needs to reallocate the contract consideration and then also remeasure the lease liability and adjust the right of use asset. Um, there's no need to reassess classification. Um, discount rates are not updated. Um, it is important to point out that when reallocating the contract consideration in these two events, it can be done either by using the same basis as the initial allocation or it can be based on relative standalone price for each component on the remeasurement date. This is an accounting policy election that lessees must elect, and um, it needs to be applied consistently across all remeasurements as applicable. Um, now, changes in lease term or changes in purchase option assessments, when you're reallocating your contract consideration, it has to be done based on the relative standalone price for each component. Okay, I'm going to make you keep talking. I know that was a lot, but I'm going to make you do it. Why is the discount rate updated for certain events and not others? Yeah, so when deliberating um, ASC 842, the FASB really concluded that changes to the lease term or a purchase option um, were really considered more significant events. Um, and in, they really just altered the economics of the arrangement in a significant way that they decided an updated discount rate was warranted. So... Okay. So depending on the number of leases a company has at any given time, this sounds like it be, could be quite an extensive exercise to continuously monitor events and circumstances that might require measurement. So what are some things companies can do to help with the process? Yeah, you answered the question yourself. Process. <laughs> so uh, companies really need to implement controls and processes in order to help monitor events that would um, trigger remeasurement or modification for leases. You know, in most large companies, those that are managing and executing leases aren't the ones in the accounting department. Um, <laughs> yeah. So it's really important that controls that are that are implemented are really kind of cross-functional. And that way, you know, departments are educated on changes impacted by 842 and um, they understand the potential impact that any modification or remeasurement would have on the financial statements. Yeah, I think that's important, like especially for private companies that are looking to obviously adopt coming up is as part of that adoption is that education of people outside accounting, because mm -hmm. 
the implications and what people need to be on the lookout for do have a lot of like downstream accounting impacts. And so trying to get people up to speed on that can be a bit of a challenge. So just, mm -hmm. you know, kind of keep in mind when you're talking to non-accounting people to leave out a lot of the jargon we were using here today because they'll be looking at you like, what the heck? <laughs> yeah. um, but, you know, let them know what they really need to be looking for and be on the lookout for, not just at adoption, but, you know, like she said, you know, the continual monitoring or changes to leases that could cause a lot of this accounting to, to be required. So we covered events leading to remeasurement. Can you talk about the remeasurement of the lease liability and corresponding adjustment to the right of use asset? Yeah, so anytime you got a remeasurement event, obviously, you know, the last piece of it is to kind of remeasure that lease liability. So again, you're looking at the present value of all those remaining lease payments. So if you change your lease term or you added a payment at the end of the term for something, you know, factoring in all those those updates, um, you know, sometimes you'll have to update the discount rate like we talked about, you know, related to lease term changes or purchase option changes, and sometimes you won't. But you go through that exercise, kind of figure out what your new lease liability is, you know, obviously compare that to what you had on the books and the differences, the adjustment you need to make to the lease liability. Um, the offset to that is obviously just going to be an adjustment to your related right of use asset. Uh, one thing to kind of keep in mind there is that, you know, changes to the lease liability aren't always increases. Sometimes they could be decreases. You know, if you think about like terminating a lease early or something. Um, so if you have any kind of downward adjustments to your right of use asset, you can't ever write that asset below zero. So mm -hmm. if you do ever have an adjustment to your lease liability that's so large that it would take your right of use asset to zero, any excess is going to have to hit your P&L. Okay, well, that's a perfect segue. We're talking about the P&L. So anything people need to keep in mind in terms of lease expense? Yeah, so just in general, under 842, like obviously classification of your lease is going to drive kind of the subsequent accounting, you know, how you recognize that lease expense. So it's no different with remeasurements. I think the, the big thing here to keep in mind, particularly around like operating leases, you know, depending whether or not you still have an operating lease or if it becomes a finance lease after the remeasurement, um, because you, in certain circumstances, you reassess classification. Um, there can be different accounting outcomes, so just something to be aware of. Um, that doesn't exist for a finance lease. So a finance lease, regardless of what the prior classification was, is just going to follow you know your traditional finance lease accounting post remeasurement. All right, and as we kind of land the plane here, you touched on the partial or full lease terminations earlier. What does a lessee need to consider here? Yeah, I think this is a, a good point to bring up because, you know, we've kind of opened up with modifications, talking about an additional right of use and, you know, you're going to get something new or add something to your existing lease, whatever. Um, but there can also be obviously changes to a lease agreement where you either decide you no longer want to use that asset anymore, or maybe you had multiple assets under that lease agreement, but you don't need as many anymore. So you're going to reduce the amount that you had. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, how do you account for those changes where you either have a full termination or in the case where you're reducing, you know, part of the right of use, then, you know, a partial termination. So, you know, if we take an example here, we've been using the floor example because I think people can understand that one pretty easily. So, you know, if a lessee's got, you know, an office building, they've got, um, you know, five floors, they decide we don't need all this space anymore, we're going to reduce it to two floors, um, you know, you're going to end up there with a partial lease termination. You know, it's probably something we saw quite a bit, you know, in 2020, even in 2021, you know, 
people looking at their lease space, particularly with COVID and, you know, change in working circumstances, people working from home a lot, you know, realizing they may not need as much space. So this is definitely like an accounting topic that that came up. When there's a full lease termination, the accounting is pretty simple. You're obviously going to have to write off your any lease liability or right of use asset that you have on your books. Um, any difference between those two amounts is generally going to be recorded as a gain or loss on the P&L. So something to keep in mind um, there as well. One thing also to mention is that a lot of times in the agreements, terminations will have some sort of fee or penalty you got to pay. Um, so whether or not that penalty was already included in your lease payments or not um, may require you to also factor that that penalty into your gain or loss um, calculation. So just one other thing to keep in mind. On the other hand, if you got a partial termination, so you've got a right of use asset that, you know, you're now only going to use, you know, a portion of it. So again, going back to our floor example, from five floors to two floors, you're going to have to reduce that right of use asset balance on your balance sheet by some type of proportionate amount. This is one, you know, particular area where I think there's a little I don't want to say judgment, but some flexibility in for how you determine what proportionate amount to reduce your right of use asset. There's a couple ways to think about it. Um, some people really look at it as a direct reduction in the, the right of use itself. So if we take our floor example um, where you had five floors and now you're going to two floors, you know, some people would argue, well, that's a 60% decrease in the right of use you originally had. So you would need to reduce your right of use asset by 60%. Um, an alternative view that people also look at is the lease liability. So what they do is they remeasure their lease liability, kind of factoring in now the reduced right of use. So lease payments are probably a lot less because you're not paying for five floors. So whatever your new lease liability remeasurement comes out to, you look at what's the percentage change from the old lease liability and you reduce your um, right of use asset by that percentage. So either way, you know, it's kind of used in practice. You, you know, obviously want to be consistent and kind of make an election, you know, particularly for other leases under, you know, certain asset classes, if that's the case. Um, and then obviously when you write off those right of use assets and lease liabilities for the partial termination, it's similar to kind of to the full termination. Any difference between the amounts is also a gain or loss. All right. Well, I think we'll, we'll land the plane here. We've covered as much as we can about lease modifications and remeasurements in a 30-minute sliver. I mean, the guidance out there is thousands and thousands of pages on 842. And as Adam mentioned, this isn't going anywhere. So if our listeners would like to learn more about this topic, please find us on LinkedIn or uh, connect with one of the social media channels that should be linked in the show notes. I'm sure we'll have more topics or more episodes on this topic in the future. Um, thank you, Adam and Nicole, for another great discussion. Sure. Yeah. And thank Glad you listeners for following along on another episode of Accounting Matters. This podcast is for general informational purposes only. Embark makes no representation or warranty as to the accuracy or completeness of the information contained in the podcast series, and it should not be used as a substitute for consultation with professional advisors. Information discussed in our podcast may also be superseded by new guidance or as new interpretations emerge. Listeners are cautioned to carefully evaluate any relevant subsequent authoritative guidance issued.